welcome to Through Our Lens, a new podcast by I am Rebecca Burry with Kimberly Nava Eggett, and we're going to start our first episode with introducing ourselves, who we are, why we chose a doctorate program, why we're doing a co-dissertation at Appalachian State. So I'm going to let Kimberly go first of who she is. Hello, my name is Kimberly Nava Eggett, and I'm a digital lead teacher in Asheville, North Carolina. I have been an educator for um, going on 15 years. I taught fourth and fifth grade for six years, and then I transitioned into the instructional technology facilitator role, or what we call a digital lead teacher, um, for the last nine years. And so I have been uh, grounded in Asheville, North Carolina. I've been here since I was eight years old, but I was originally born in Los Angeles, California. My father's from Asheville is why we ended up here. Um, I feel very passionate about public education and empowering students and teachers. And I was a North Carolina teaching fellow. So at the age of 18, I knew I was gonna be a classroom teacher and I'm very grateful for the opportunity to have gotten the scholarship that put me where I was um, and where I am today. Now, would I ever guess that I was gonna be a technology person? No, I just thought I was gonna be a classroom teacher and did not even think that I would be going into a doctorate program. But here I am and I am pretty grateful for the program itself. Uh, Rebecca and I are doing the educational leadership with an instructional technology leadership focus uh, through Appalachian State University. It's We are part of online cohort one. So we're groundbreaking with online cohorts, with the online cohort program and I did not know what I was getting myself into um, as far as rigor and pushing boundaries for my own thinking and academic uh, knowledge and reading and writing and thinking. But man, have I been grateful for this process and how it has refined my leadership role. A lot of people often ask me why I'm getting my doctorate. And I finally have come up with the response that um, I'm able to so I'm going to do it. There was not this, I'm going to be an administrator or central office staff person one day kind of mentality going into it. I just know that I'm the, I'm a first generation college graduate for either side of my family. My mom is a Mexican immigrant and she was the first one from her family to graduate high school out of a, the baby of 10. So I felt like education was always pushed um, and expected of me. And once this online opportunity to get a doctorate became available, I wanted to jump in on that. So I don't know where this is really gonna take me, except that I now am a more confident writer and learner, and I am grateful for getting to meet with other people, especially Rebecca. Mm -hmm. So with that, I'm gonna toss it back over to you, Rebecca. Perfect intro. <laughs> okay, I am Rebecca Burry. I am a K-5 STEM teacher in Mooresville, North Carolina, which is right up above Charlotte. I started my career, same as Kimberly, as a classroom teacher. I taught third grade for um, two years and I taught first grade for a little bit, which was fun and interesting. And then I taught second grade. And, you know, I, I'm like Kimberly, I didn't have plans to be in the, the tech world, but I knew I wanted to get a master's degree and I had researched colleges all over and App State had an online program. I had a three-year-old. So 
it was either curriculum or technology. And I decided that I really love technology and I'd really like to learn how to use it and integrate it better in my classroom. So, you know, going into it as I was going to stay a classroom teacher. But what I found out is the passion I had for technology was way bigger than I could have ever expected. So I was able to get a technology teaching position. And part of that position, um, I was able to teach the kids and also coach the teachers at our school. And as time went on and I finished the master's program, my capstone project was on STEM education. It was kind of a new thing. And around 2014, it was becoming a trend in schools. So I kind of led up the grant writing and teams and getting teachers together and getting them excited about STEM in our school. So that became my thing. And our school um, this past year at, was recognized as a North Carolina STEM School of Distinction. A lot of hours, a lot of blood, sweat, tears, and writing. But um, through that process, I realized that I had a large passion for students knowing that they could do something. Um, it doesn't matter what the something is, but they had a choice of anything. Um, and growing up, I grew up in a rural town in South Carolina. I love growing up in a small town, but sometimes I felt like I was limited of the things I knew I could do. And, you know, like Kimberly said, it's thinking about being in a doctorate program. It wasn't on the to-do list. It was, you know, hey, you know, App State, which I love App State, by the way, has a program online, you know, uh, it's, it's available, I can do it. And I was like, Kimberly, if it's there, I, let's do it. And I had no idea what I was going into. I knew that with a doctorate degree, um, one of two things would happen, doors would open, or the things I was already saying and passionate about would become more meaningful to some if you have those letters before and after your name. And it's just the way it works. So when I started the program, wow, um, it, you learn a lot about yourself, a lot of things you already knew about yourself that you didn't have the words to say or articulate or, uh, or share. And I have been very blessed that Kimberly and I have been kind of in tandem together through our concentration and through our doctorate program. Um, we keep each other in line and you'll find out there's so much that is similar about us. And it's my, you know, I'm getting ready to start year 15 too. And there's so much that is similar and there's so much that's different. It just, it makes it really, um, really a cool opportunity for us to work together. And we are very grateful that we have the opportunity um, to be in a co-dissertation, which I think we can talk about now. It's it's Appalachian State's first co-dissertation. Um, we are very honored that our um, dissertation chair, Dr. Patrick O'Shea, and the dean of the um, doctorate program, um, Dr. Vachel Miller, they kind of asked us about it, our interest in it. And, you know, it took us a couple weeks ago, we were like, how did we get started in this? And we had to think about it. But, you know, they, they said, we think you two could be the ones to do it. So, of course, we're like, yeah, why not? And Kimberly, I don't know how you felt about it. I was excited because Kimberly and I keep ourselves organized. She has the master list of all the things 
I have the tiny list of all the things. So she works for all the all of our program. She has all the classes. I have the classes for that semester. So I check off my list. She checks off her list. She gives me the next list. So she keeps me organized. But I was very excited to work with her. Um, and like I said, we're similar, but we're different. And that that's what I think makes it a really cool matchup. And I'm excited to see where our dissertation goes. And that's part of our process. We're figuring out where we're going, but we're doing it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm thinking back to the beginnings of our, our initial coursework and how we often were peer editors on each other's work and how comfortable we felt with sharing our work with each other. And um, it should also be noted that Rebecca and I have never met in real life. Um, you know, I didn't get to go to the opening uh, orientation for the doctorate program because I was at a conference and so Rebecca was taking awesome notes for me, um, but that would have been when we would have met. Um, and so I think just, you know, let's, let's see uh, if we can keep this relationship up, but you know, let's, let's make it interesting and not have ever met in real life. <laughs> There'll be um, an unveiling when we defend. Yes. <laughs> so now like, let's just wait and let's wait until we actually defend our co-dissertation to meet each other for the first time. Um, but I think it's because of the coursework that we were in before we were officially in the doctorate program, we completed the instructional technology leadership courses that were used as our concentration for the degree, but they happened before kind of to prep us. And there was such a small group of us that we were just, we had to lean on each other and we had to share with each other because it was only, was it three or four? Yeah, three of us. Yeah. And so I think with that, we were able to build such trust and communication and a co-dissertation idea, I don't think is for everyone in every relationship, but we also want to show folks that um, online communities can be real and relevant and rewarding. And so, yeah, we're going to share with you our process. The whole premise of this podcast is so that you get to hear kind of our thinking process and thinking out loud. We don't have anything really scripted. We have, this is just how Rebecca and I often check in with each other. And so uh, with the guidance of Dr. O'Shea of just saying, hey, maybe it would be helpful for others to hear how you share ideas. So today's focus of our conversation is what is our actual research question that we want to have answered in our co-dissertation? Because there's so many things we're interested in. And it does feel a little bit of pressure, like this is your dissertation work. You know, this is the thing. But we are often also reminded that this isn't the end-all, be-all of all work. So I think that's why I know I'm struggling with nailing down a research question because I want to do all the things. <laughs> Yeah. I want to make sure it's impactful. Yeah, and you know, part of us working together is, it, like Kimberly said, it's not for everyone. And being women in technology and building each other up is super important. It's, it's we're, you know, it's kind of that thing of we're encouraging each other's success and supporting each other. And these research questions, I'm going to tell you. We have thought and rethought and thought and rethought about them of what do we really want 
to know, like at the end of this, you know, and this is just one thing in the next things to come, mm -hmm. but what do we really want to do? Or what do we really want to know? And, you know, we, um, being elementary teachers, we started with a Venn diagram of things that interest Kimberly and things that interest Rebecca and things that are intersecting. And it took us um, a few discussions later, um, you know, a few texting and a few talking. And, you know, Kimberly said, the word is representation. And it's, you know, and, you know, as we go through this, you'll find um, we both have different lenses that we look through for um, the way we look at representation and different whys, but it's representation. So from there, I think we kind of sprung off of, well, what, what's the thing that we want to know? Um, so we have, was it two? We have two mm -hmm. questions that we're thinking about. So like she said, you're going to hear us talk through of, you know, is this our questions? Is there more questions? Can we add to it? Because you know, like all good dissertation work, you have to have this really long title and long questions, you know, not really, but sometimes you feel that way. But so Kim, I'm gonna let you read them and we'll just talk through them. Well, and I think maybe before we step into the questions, I think, you know, the whole premise of the title of even this podcast through our lens also is setting the groundwork of the theoretical frameworks we're working from. So as we, um, we're completing our qualifying exam. I wrote a lot about critical race theory. That's what I kept feeling myself grounded and 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 searching answers through um, as a biracial Latina who has uh, a foot on two sides of the world. It feels like sometimes um, critical race theory is what I often come back to. I'm also the only person that is. Uh, identifies as Latina, but is also uh, a person of color uh, in my field, in my district. So I feel like I'm often finding myself in spaces that uh, I can't necessarily relate to completely. I have learned to like blend in and, you know, the white side of me, uh, you know, is, is able to, to do that. But there, there are pieces of me that I don't feel like I can truly be my whole self. And so I think that's where my lens and tech and in those circles that I'm in, um, what, what keeps coming to the surface um, as we look at these questions. Rebecca, what about you? So I look at it and I did my qualifying exams on a feminist lens. And it's, it's kind of one of those things that like Kimberly was talking about, it's, we discovered a lot about ourselves so through the doctorate program and through my writings and readings, um, we were given different theories that we could, and um, one of our professors said flirt with, we can flirt with different theories and what stuck with us. And, you know, feminist theory kept sticking with me and I kept pushing it aside and saying, no, that's not me. Um, but as I worked through the program and through reading and writing, that's, that's my theory. And I had this big epiphany moment where I came to my cohort and said, hey guys, I have to tell you something. I've discovered I'm a feminist. And I was expecting them to go, wow, whoa. And they were like, okay, yeah, we kind of already knew that. And looking back, 
um, the work I've done with girls in STEM and girls in robotics and making sure that they're invited to the table, they're welcome, they know that they have a place you know, even if it's at a robotics table, they know they have a place there and they can code and they can do things um, has always been a thing. And as I look back on myself through time, there's a lot of feminist waves about me. And it, it was just one of those things where I realized that that is one of my passions. And through the program, I've been able to articulate it and speak it and know what it really means, because there's a misconception when you say feminist. Um, it does not mean, you know, it, it's it's like all stereotypes that you have to fight against. And through my qualifying exam, I kind of, you know, address that of what it really means. It doesn't mean it's just for women. It's, you know, it, it doesn't mean that it's only a woman's thing. So, you know, when I think about technology, I think about, you know, making sure it's all inclusive and that includes females and making sure that just because it's predominantly been a male, you know, I won't say organization, but yeah, yeah field, it doesn't mean that that's what it has to be. So, um, so mine is through a feminist lens. Yeah, so as we look at these questions, um, you can get a sense of the why these are the questions that are coming up for both of us is that representation piece. Um, and Rebecca, I would say critical race theory is in that same boat right now because it's hitting the, the media uh, as this negative and uh, dismantling of, of what schooling should look like. I'm doing air quotes, you can't see. but. Uh, so, uh, you know, just like feminists are getting a bad rap, so are critical race theorists right now. And I, I mean, I, re I remember earlier this year, I tweeted something out to one of my blog posts that I, where I was reflecting how critical race theory is helping me frame myself as an instructional technology facilitator. And I just got these Autobots responding with these terrible things that I had to block because they were just bots. They weren't actual people that were trying to have a conversation. Um, so yeah, we're, we're coming yeah. with what is seen right now as a radical lens, I would say to, um, to some folks. So with that said, okay. and I think that Rebecca yeah. and I are interested in doing a deeper dive into the who we are in a later episode, but um, yeah. And I think it comes from people not understanding. So part of our work will be kind of framing that understanding of what it really is. Because like I said, I had a misconception myself of feminism. And you know, there are, there's a lot of misconceptions about what critical race theory is. So um, part of our dissertation will probably be informing people what it is and what it's not. So before we go forward with our work, but Today it's figuring out what is the thing that we want to know. Yeah, so let's uh, let's maybe unpack the first question we have, which okay. is how can we leverage technology in order to offer space for our student and teacher voices? So one of the things that um, one of the readings that I did this year was Race and Technology by Dr. Ruha Benjamin and how 
technology can either be used as a tool of oppression or a tool for liberation. In other words, you know, examples of how algorithms have been used for scanning people faces, people's faces and then using them as a way to arrest folks and how there is a bias there of brown and black folks uh, being inaccurately represented in those sorts of like facial recognition software. And so when I think about like leveraging technology and when I think about critical race theory, I go back to that book and how it just broke open my head about data justice and, and how technology can, if not kept in check, can, can continue to lift up certain voices and continue to uh, mute others. What are your thoughts on that question? Yeah, and you know, as part of that, like offering a space and it, I keep coming back to making that space. Um, it's been a long time since I read um, oh, Cheryl Sandberg's book, Lean In, but it, it just, it has that feeling of, as she talks about in her book, having to lean in as a woman to meetings where she didn't feel like she belonged. And, you know, the wording of having a space is, is huge for me because it's not that I'm on the outside having to lean in or I'm not included. It's I'm invited. And, you know, part of our work with technology is, is we want it to be where it's a space for students and teachers that they feel like the technology is helping them learn or assisting them in a way. And I really like that, you know, how they have, you know, students and teachers have a space. And as far as their voices, um, we've talked a lot about, you know, us and our stories and the things we want to provide for our students going forward. Um, we're really interested in how our work's going to impact, you know, as students come, you know, it's for future students. And I think, you know, really looking into how we can make that space for their voices and with technology and making sure it is an all-inclusive thing, which is very difficult to think about. It's, you know, we don't want to reach most students. We want to reach all of our students and especially our, our black and brown and female population um, in technology. But but I do really like that wording, um, offering a space. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I like that it's offer and not make a space because offer is an invitation, not throwing, because not everybody's gonna love technology. I don't know why, but not <laughs> everyone's gonna love technology like we do. But like Kimberly said earlier, we have never met in person and our friendship and our working relationship has been on Zoom or via text or emails. And, you know, we have a really strong relationship, enough relationship to do a co-dissertation. And we've already decided at the end of this, we're still going to be friends. And, <laughs> and it's, you know, so technology can offer a space for learning. And I think we want to have that but also we want to make sure that our students and teachers have a, their voice in that no matter what that voice is yeah and I also I think 
you and I feel strongly about including student and teacher voices in our work. Like our work as coaches, our work as as supporting others and empowering others is why that is centered in that question. I, you know, we were asked earlier this week if we were interested in doing an what was it an a co-autoethnography. But then that means centering our voices and that didn't feel right to us. And as much as we like to share our, our story, we want to help others be able to share their stories and, um, and their narratives. And I also go back to the work I did last summer on culturally responsive UDL and how we, we want to make sure that the technology that we're using, especially after experiencing a global pandemic and virtual learning, that we're not just replacing the worksheet. You know, we're not just doing, doing something that's a substitution based on the SAMR model. Um, we do want it to be meaningful. Maybe that goes into that next question a little bit, but we want to make sure that what we're offering is relevant to the student, engages the student, and allows them to get the kind of feedback that they can learn and grow from. Um, so maybe let's go into that next question, okay. which is how can we leverage technology to create meaningful connections to each other and ourselves? So we're using leverage technology in both of those questions. Um, and maybe that meaningful connections to each other is no longer relevant because we did these questions before we decided not to do the co-auto ethnography. Mm -hmm. How can we leverage technology to create meaningful connections to each other and ourselves? And it might be to other students and other teachers or, you know, and I, I really like how you added the teacher into that because oftentimes in education, we think of we're student centered. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be student centered. I mean, that the whole purpose for there is to be student centered, but you always have to go back to the teacher in the room. And it's um, in our field of coaching teachers with technology, we have all different kinds. I'm just going to classify them in three categories, which is very broad. Um, you have your teacher that um, would rather you take all the technology out of their room. You have the teacher that loves having the stuff, not sure how to use it. And then you have the teacher that is asking for the two next new things to be placed in their classroom because they love it. So our job is working with all of those. And like I said, those are really, those are three very broad. There's a, there's a large scale in between there. But as, as the teacher feels comfortable and the teacher feels like technology can make a space in their room and not be that substitution. Instead of a book, we're gonna give you an iPad to read on. You know, we're not interested in that kind of work. Um, we're interested in more of how can it make meaningful? And that's a, that's a big word for us, meaningful, not just, hey, they're using an iPad, but make it meaningful and having the teacher feel supported in that. Um, because if the teacher doesn't feel supported with the technology and doesn't feel um, like he or she has somewhere to go to learn about it, they're not going to use it in the class. And then it's not going to 
filter into the student. So I think I really like how we've added student and teacher. And you know, maybe it's maybe ours is more of a connection to the student story or oh gee, I don't know. Um yeah, we should also mention that we're interested in doing our dissertation in four articles. We failed to mention that. Yeah, we forgot about that. <laughs> you know, we're pushing all the boundaries on what's expected out of the dissertation. <laughs> but a traditional dissertation is a five chapter dissertation. It's like 275 pages long. I remember when I first heard that and I was like, what? Why didn't anybody tell me that's what was going to be involved? They should have mentioned that at the orientation. Maybe they did, but I didn't catch that. Anyway. But they did, and I just didn't want to listen. I was like, oh, no, I can't write. <laughs> um, and so then we heard about someone who did three article, a three-article dissertation, all the same sort of theme, and they were ready for publication. Um, and we got advice that if we are maybe interested in higher ed someday, which I think we both have that interest, um, I've dabbled in adjunct work, and I know you have as well, that having articles on a CV looks good. And so the way we're doing it is we're doing two shared articles and then two individual articles all under the same umbrella of representation and through our lens. Um, so with that being said, I think that's also important to note on how that might impact our questions. And as I think about what you just said, Rebecca, about like student and teacher voices that could give us some, like we could explore that as in we could, one of us do a student situation and one of us focuses on teachers or vice versa, or they, we could both do that, but that offers some possibility, I think. I think that's the thing too that we're grappling with is the fact that there are lots of options now. We, we've now opened the Pandora's because we're not necessarily being forced into whatever traditional model is expected, which is awesome, but also a little terrifying because we're kind of laying the groundwork for other people. It is. And we've talked about before, because we love metaphors, or I know I love metaphors. So I can't speak really. <laughs> we are trying to be a beacon that you're attracted to, to do something work like this, if it's in your realm, and not the lighthouse where we're going to scare you away from not crashing into the rocks. But, um, you know, like Kimberly said, for us, it made the most um, sense in our work to do the articles. And you know, traditional dissertations with five chapters usually become articles. They usually take them apart and become articles. So as far as us, you know, doing the work, we like the fact we would come out of this with four articles. And, and that kind of opens us up to be able to talk about more things or write about more things than just the thing. And, and our work right now is trying to figure out like how all these are going to work. So I think it's like us putting tires on the car. Like we've got the car. We know what the car is. The car is technology and representation. But now we're trying to figure out like how, like how we're going to make it run with all these going on. And, you know, and we're really, we're really interested in also, like we talked about SAMR model of making it, making technology where it's, it's a part of the classroom. It's integrated in so much that it's not just the extra thing. It is, 
the thing that makes classrooms go. And through the pandemic this past year, um, the reluctant people to use technology had to use technology. So they had to lean on Kimberly and I in our separate schools. They had to lean on us to understand how it works. And oddly enough, in my building, we've had a couple of them become virtual teachers and love it. And conversations of who, who knew I would want to be a virtual teacher? I didn't even, I, I was never getting away from PowerPoint enough to even go to Google Slides. Who knew that I'd even want to like learn what Zoom is and learn all these other new ways of delivering my instruction. And you know, that, that might be another road that we go down of technology students find meaningful, technology teachers find meaningful. Um, or especially our coaching roles, because I know we've talked about that before is, you know, it, it looks different in both of our districts of how a technology coach, you know, works um, with teachers. Mm -hmm. And this is where we start to digress because yeah. <laughs> we end up the possibilities of things. Um, and I think the thing that I'm coming back to is what kind of stories do we want our kids or teachers to be able to tell about who they are, like their identity, or about where they're situated in the story of the school? You know, I feel like mm -hmm. the narrative of our school gets spun in different ways, and I feel like sometimes we have control over. Most of the time it's positive. Oh, that school, that's such a great school, you know, but then it's also sometimes gets spun as oh it's a super white school which is not true but because historically it's in a neighborhood that before um we started busing kids all over the district due to a, a desegregation order it was historically white and that st that started in the 80s and it's still a story that's following us now so i mean i feel like there's Oh my gosh, there are just so many possibilities of narratives. You know, the story of the teacher. Um, I feel like teachers, I know for me, when I was a classroom teacher, I was in my own little bubble. I didn't even know what it was like in a fourth grade classroom, much less a kindergarten classroom in my same building because we're in such siloed spaces and we have such limited time to do anything but what we're supposed to do in that siloed space that this could allow for teacher voice and sharing what they're experiencing um sheesh and maybe even you know as far as the the tech world goes is what do they need to be supported in because maybe maybe we don't have it all right of how we're supporting them the, the trainings that they need the the funding that they need for their classroom or you know because a lot of times there's decisions made about let's say you're going to have a one-to-one -one school. There's a decision made that it's going to be iPads. Well, maybe iPads aren't the best thing. Maybe it's Chromebooks. Maybe it's MacBooks. Maybe, you know, I don't know. But maybe we're not tuned in to know what teachers need in the classrooms to be, to use, to leverage all these things. Um, maybe those are decisions that are made without their voice. And, um, like you said, oftentimes we get kind of in our own silos of, 
you know, I, I know I get in my cool tech bubble, like, oh, that's the new thing and you can use it for this, but you can, might, you can order them for the whole building, but that doesn't mean everybody's gonna know what it is, how to use it and be excited about it. Like I might be, or somebody else might have a thing that I don't know about and I'm not gonna be as excited about it as they are. So maybe, you know, we can look into the, the tech tools that they have to leverage. Um, maybe there's no funding for subscriptions. Maybe there's no funding for said devices or, yeah, you know, comes up every year. can we get brain pop? No, we can't. Yeah. It's so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> like we cannot do it. So, you know, maybe we look into, yeah, we, you know, teachers want to integrate technology, but the how, like the coaching behind it, the, yeah, the purchasing of things. Um, yeah, and there's such a balance between what's like all of a sudden, you know, just these devices come in or these decisions get made. Most of the time, in my experience, it is a conversation um, within the DLTs and the director, and there is a, there is what I feel is good voice, but then we're also having to represent all the teachers in our building to make that decision, and sometimes a question gets asked impromptu and I have to make a help make a decision without the opportunity to give teacher voice yeah. and, and that's maybe, and maybe uh, our work is finding what it is like what are the things that teachers need in their classroom or you know what are the things that students feel like would help them learn better I mean do you feel like that goes back to our big word of representation though no. <laughs> I guess I'm thinking about that. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really great to explore yeah. if it comes back to what we set out to do, which is representation. Exactly. This lens and that critical race theory lens. Again, yeah. that would be awesome work to do. Right. That's, that's the work that someone can hire us to do after the thing. <laughs> um, that's good that we have that, that word to help keep us grounded. Exactly. Um, and with that, you know, we both do code.org and hour of code mm -hmm. and many years ago, um, which many years ago to me, is like four to five years ago, there was a video that they showed of students walking in and they would ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up? And they would say, you know, cowboy, sheriff, a teacher, a, you know, a doctor, they would say kind of what you would feel like is a generic answer for a student. Mm -hmm. And then after the hour of code, um, and they were showing kids how to code and program and do all the things, then they were standing and it was just a screen that would have all the jobs of coding, like graphic designer, um, gaming software engineer, like all these like jobs. Mm -hmm. And the kids would take a step back and go, oh, wow, like I didn't realize that through decoding, you know, um, an angry bird through a maze, like that work can go into making a video game. I like video games. You can make video games. That can be your job. Like, yeah, that can be your job. And I just, that was, you know, I hope it was impactful on the kids. But to me, standing there, I was like, wow, have I showed my students, this is, this is the why we do it. But this is the doors it can open. And some of those doors I didn't even know about, like, 
I mean, as the words were going across, I was like, well, I didn't think about that. I didn't think about this. But um, I think that comes to mind when I start thinking about tech and I start thinking about our students and having those opportunities and, and, you know, just looking at that scroll by and going, wow, I didn't even know that or you know, or I'm sure you've had this experience where the kids come in and go, I don't know what coding is. I don't want to do it. And then they find out, I love coding. Like, can I do more? And then you have them go from using Blockly coding to writing JavaScript and making their own app. And, you know. Where they then end up surpassing my knowledge of yes. uh, the, the computer science skills. Yes. Yeah. Usually they become Miss Burry's techies and they come back in and they then teach another group, which shows leadership on their part, helps me out because they have now, like you said, surpassed me. And I'm like, thank you very much. Now you can show me what you're doing. That's make, so that makes me think about two things. One is, yes, I love Hour of Code Week. I get super pumped. I wear a nerdy shirt every day of the week. I come in and I'm like the cool aunt that's like, let's do robots, you know? And I think that the teacher's perception is, oh, Ms. Nava Eggett's coming in to do something cool and neat. It'll be fun for an hour and we're gonna move on with our day. You know, like they do it because the kids are stoked about it and they don't have to really put any, you know, thought towards something and, um, I think a lot, there are plenty of folks that now see the value of exposing them to computer science. But I also, um, I've only had a handful of people actually say, I'm ready to just do this on my own during hour of code week. Like I still have several people just schedule me during that time. Like I'm the person that can, o- can only have this knowledge and therefore do it and expose them to it. Um, I also have a coding club and it has changed over the years in several ways. And um, I always make sure that the majority of kids that are there are kids that don't have access to after school, are kids that um, I've seen during Hour of Code Week get excited, but haven't seeked out coding club. And I will walk up to that kid and say, hey, I want to personally invite you to coding club. And I have to keep it a small group, though, because then everyone would be there. And I hate to not invite every student, but I also have to make sure that the opportunity I give is to those that wouldn't seek out the opportunity themselves or see themselves from that lens. So I have a majority of either girls or brown and black kids in my coding club. And I have plenty of, you know, kids that would be like, can I be in your coding club? Can I be in your coding club? And I have to say, I'm sorry, but what the space opens up, you know, and I, I do it for first through fifth graders. Um, and I have, you know, rethought that coding club so many ways and they are there at 715 in the morning. So they're not sitting in the gym before class. And this fun stuff that we get to do, you know, is like programming circuit breadboards and making magic wands out of them or um, a STEM challenge with Sphero robots. And so I have heard so many times during COVID and virtual time, like, but what about coding club? (laughs) And I just, I couldn't pull off a virtual coding club. I just did not have the bandwidth to be able to do that. But those are the things that I have certain students always seek out. Um, and I'm so glad that I could offer that space. 
but it makes me wonder how can I make that better or how can I capture a student's perception of themselves or computer science through that? Or even like you started with the teacher's perception of the space coding offers, whether it be in the classroom or it's in the workforce, because, you know, we relate, and I'm sure you do this too, we relate back all the time. Well, where are robots used? Well, let's say in this assembly line, let's say it's BMW creating a car. You know, instead of people lifting and moving things, we have a programmed robot that's going to precisely do it every single time. But we have to have people behind that robot understanding how it works, understanding mm-hmm. something's not working right, how to debug it and those kind of things. So it could be where we're, you know, we have that space for students, but also having that space for teachers to to understand the importance of leveraging tech, whether it be through coding or whether it be through, through brain pop that we can't afford, but. (laughs) I think that leveraging technology piece to our question is important because it means taking what we have and making it work for us rather than taking what we have and just using it in the same way. It's like, how do you take what you have, make it the most out of what you need it to be? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, we were also warned not to think about the thing. <laughs> we always want to think about the thing. We want to go to what's our study? Is it a survey? Is it interviews? Is it, we're supposed to not think about that. And we're supposed to just think about what is it we want to know. But I am guilty. I go back to if it's a survey, we would ask this. If it was an interview, we would ask this. If it was field notes, we would look for this. So it's so hard not to go to the thing first. Yeah, I know. But just to what we want to know. And I think we have to leave it open so we have space to have those kinds of how we're going to frame it. Because I think our questions, yes, they're going to frame our work. But I don't think we want it to be where it's so closed off that it's, that it's not open to, you know, I don't know what yeah, yeah. to say. Like it's, like we don't want to close ourselves so tight in the box that, um, that when we figure out what the thing is. Right. So I feel like we're talking more about the first one than we are about the second one. I think that we're talking more about leveraging technology in order to offer space for our student and teacher voices versus how can we leverage technology to create meaningful connections to each other and ourselves. It sounds like maybe the first question is the one that we need to go towards and maybe rework, but it might be that that it's that teacher and student voice piece. Yeah, and maybe that's our big piece. And then we have sub pieces from that like what is the student voice what is the student voice we want to to be able to hear what is the teacher voice how does that look and maybe we frame it that way of you know what 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 is the space we want to offer and how do we create that space because I think that's where our lens is going to come in of how to quick how to how do you create that space for black and brown students? How do we create that space for female students in technology? Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, as the teaching role, that's probably where we pull our SAMR in is how do we create that space for teachers to know how to use, you know, how to leverage the technology, mm -hmm. I think. I'm trying to think back to what Dr. O'Shea said with those questions, and I should have written them down. I don't know if you did. Yeah, I did. He said the why and the added value or the value added. So I think we know our why, like why we want to do it, but I think we have to think about what's the value added, I guess, for the students and the teachers and, you know, in tech. To be heard, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think, the I think the value added part is a big part of, you know, the why is setting the stage, but the value added is what we're putting out into the, the education field, which is what a dissertation is. It's the work that you do to move education in a way. And the way we want to move it is representation in tech. Yeah, maybe throw a little bit of that SAMR in there by going towards redefinition, like being able to define what redefinition looks like too. Yeah. And culturally responsive media. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because all the things how they like. Yeah. Expect. Yeah, because it has to start with there because you can't just assume um, or you can't just, you can't frame a textbook classroom which I talk about all the time is in textbook classrooms like everything's fine and everything's great and everything runs correct and all the iPads are charged and all like the internet works without interruption everything works perfect but then you go to real life classrooms like you know it's knowing how to use the tech or and that's what? so the frustration as an educator and of fellow educators is that people that are higher up, you know, you're often then like, okay, we'll come in here and do it. Yeah. Keeping those expectations and rules of me, show me what that. Yeah. And I think making sure that we're authentic is, is huge. You know, we, we are very authentic in our work that we do. And, I, you know, I know I want to pull that through in this work is we don't want to just write about what should be done but we would be on the ground doing it with teachers because we're right there with them and with the students so we don't want to go as an angle of you know this is what we say through our readings and writings you know we don't know if it'll work but this is what we say like you know i think at the end of this we want our work to be like that second one said meaningful and you know adding an authentic and something that can move technology forward in our classrooms. So maybe that first question could say, how can we leverage technology in order to offer space for authentic student experience? Yes. And that would incorporate that authenticity. It would allow us to yeah. be reminded of being on the ground with those folks, not yeah. theoretically talking. Yeah. Like we're not in the clouds. <laughs> right. So if we think about our articles, then, you know, we have over there article one, framing our work and theory behind it. So we've got our two theories. So we frame it, you know, this is our 
big research question. So what we want to do, these are our two theories, and then our methodology piece, which we will come up with, because yeah. our research question will lead us there. Right. Um, you know, I think we definitely talk about our podcast, you know, it is kind of a co-autoethnography in and of itself, but the work that we're going to do will have a, a, a different methodology piece of what we're trying to yeah. find, which will come. And then, you know, our article three and four, I mean, we, I think we can take from that first question and I think we can have kind of subtopics from that, that could be, how does this look like one could be more of how does this work in a school? Like, how does it work in a classroom? How does it work as a coaching role? How does it work as a student? Um, and then one could be maybe an example of how things work, how you know a teacher might have an idea, a student might have a way they want their voice to be heard and we work through that, like with planning and how, because I think that's an important piece because like we've talked about before, there was no manual of how to be a coach. Um, Kimberly shared a great book, The Art of Coaching, and I've already forgotten the, the author. Elena Aguilar. Yeah, so I've started that book. And, you know, we don't have a manual per se, but the work that we collaborate and do together as, you know, kind of on that tech coaching side and how we relate to the teachers, mm -hmm. because it, it's, it's not just, you know, it, it's hard because not every classroom is inviting of another teacher to come in because it's it's a strange feeling of having another teacher coming in and being welcomed and working together sometimes you have to build that relationship over a long period of time so maybe that's you know that could be you know an article worth interest of how do you how do you then start that coaching role to to teachers and how that teacher voice comes in Okay, but we don't have to think about that right now. No, again, we like to think about all the things. <laughs> I think that if we could the authenticity in that question, yeah. I think that will allow us to be reminded of or to ground us in what we want to do. I think so. Okay, so it sounds so, like I call it success. We're going to add in a word and then Look we have that. the question. We know what we want to do. <laughs> yeah, so um, we also have to write this up um, because we still have to technically get approved by the graduate school. Right, so part of what we're doing because it's new and groundbreaking and it's going to be a beacon of light for all to follow that that are willing to, um, because it's new to Appalachian State, um, we have to, uh, I wouldn't say defend, but kind of give an overview of the why we want to write together. If you will, of our prospectus. Yeah, and it's one of those things where we're gonna have both of our names on a finished piece. And it's different because normally it's a singular work by a singular person in defending. And, you know, part of us telling the why of the work that we're doing, why we want to work together, how we chose our committee and, you know, showcasing, you know, we're still doing the work just together through a collaboration. So 
Um, our next step is we're working on, you know, we've, we've written a two pager, but adding to that. So um, our dissertation chair and the Dean of the doctorate program can take it to the College of Ed to get it or the graduate school to get it approved of yes, you know, we all see the, the meaningfulness of this. And, you know, it's, we want to do that early on, as we've been told, we want to do that early on instead of going through the work and then realizing later, nope, that's not the direction the, the graduate school wants to go. But, um, but I think with this question, I think that helps us with explaining our why. Because as you can tell, we like to go in eight different directions at one time. So, so, so grounding is important. Yes. What I'm thinking too, Rebecca, is that, you know, we just had that meeting last week and they asked us to go ahead and elaborate this onto a paper. I think that we should get them this writing maybe by the end of this week. I think so. That's what I was going to say. We'll make Friday our fast and hard deadline. Yeah. yeah. Maybe Friday could be our deadline so that that can just be done. I'm going to write that down so I don't forget. And and just so you can have like an insight into our writing, um, like Kimberly said at the beginning, we have we have read each other's work and we have an understanding that when we change things or move things or correct things, it's not one of us trying to be better than the other or one of us trying to showcase, I know how to say this better. It's, it's a mutual understanding of a working together. And Kimberly and I have totally different writing styles and, you know, it, and that's okay. And for the longest, I'll tell you, honestly, when I started the program and I was peer editing, cause we had to peer edit a lot of people's work. Um, some of the things that I've read, I was like, oh my goodness, this person uses at least 10 big words in this whole thing. And <laughs> I think I've used two big words and the way that they talk and, and I like to tell stories and I like to add in a story with it. And I was very self-conscious and I would get feedback of, you know, your writing is unique. And I was like, is unique bad? Because you have to understand to be doctorate students, we are overachievers. So we dissect every word in every way. So if you say unique, it might be coming from unique, different, great, I like it. Or it might be unique, odd, strange, weird. What are you doing? You know, so when we write together, like on this piece, what we'll do is we'll just start and we'll text each other, hey, I wrote on this page, check this out. And we edit things with each other. And Kimberly's really good about rewording and making sure all the commas are in the right place. But there's an understanding between us that, that we're equal in this and there's no hard feelings. Like if Kimberly read a paragraph and went, what are you writing about? I'd probably go, yeah, I don't know. I'll come back. That was probably late at night. But um, Well, and I wonder how that came to be because I feel like I am in spaces where it is a competition. Yes. It is you having, not you, you, but like myself having to prove myself. And I think that comes from years of imposter syndrome and having to 
forage forge a space because that space wasn't made for me before and I couldn't really lean on other people because my parents didn't really understand what I was going through. Um, and then I married someone who is a great writer and I didn't feel like I was a good writer. And so I would always get him to read my work and help be my editor. And now through this doctorate program, after that first semester, he has not read anything of mine until it's done. And I just want him to read it, to read it. Like, I don't want you to give me feedback Yeah, because I know what I wrote and it's like, and so I think that it's been this process for us too of breaking through like we're in the doctorate program because we have proved ourselves that we're we can do the work like that's not the question anymore and so for so much of our schooling we've had to prove ourselves and now we we we're expected to bring that kind of academic rigor to the table but it's not because no one thinks that we can handle it Right. So and, I and I know I have to hear it often. I still go back sometimes like, oh, should I be here? And I'm like, no, stop. We both have earned our space. Of be we have proven ourselves. And, and I think it gets to that point where you're like, well, we, we both are here. We both have something to offer, similar and different things to offer. But, and like we said at the very beginning, this is not for everyone. Like everyone wouldn't flourish in a co-dissertation and an understanding because there's going to be things along the way like for example when we co-write an an article there has to be a first author and a second author and how you navigate that and I think it's going to teach us a lot going forward and collaborating with other colleagues and of course we're always going to collaborate together in something all the time but I think it's important of knowing how that works because it doesn't always work as well as Kimberly and I work together and maybe us talking, you know, as we continue these episodes, us talking through how we've navigated that might help someone else going forward. Yeah. So with that, I know that we're coming up on an hour of, of us, talking and it's funny when I first we had this conversation I was like I want to keep these brief because I <laughs> don't have an hour to give to listen to other podcast episodes but maybe these first few will be uh longer just because we don't have to give so much framing um and then we hope to get a little bit more digestible with time um and it'd be like a check-in and yeah. you know we want you to meet our dissertation committee because it's important, the people you surround yourself with and, and you know, how they came to be. So I know that's, that's coming up in futures. And, you know, it, like Kimberly said, we are trying to get our navigation set to north of where we're going. Yep. But I feel pretty good about this question. I do. I like it. About it. I think that once we talk to our chair about it, and get some feedback on what he thinks might be if we need to refine it that might be helpful too before we start the four to five pages on it yeah okay all right well i think we're gonna wrap this episode up and tune in for more episodes of kimberly and i talking about our co-dissertation and 
through our lens. <laughs> Thank y'all.